0: Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Americans don't do well with the concept of miracles. We live in a culture so deeply influenced by the enlightenment and the scientific method that we just have a hard time with anything we can't explain, with anything we can't really figure out. If you think about it, that's exactly what miracles are. They're inexplicable occurrences. But this kind of aversion to miracles is not just a modern problem the United States actually has a legacy of attempting to explain away miracles or pretend they just didn't happen. Uh, This is what I'm talking about. This book was originally called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, but it is now just known as the Jefferson Bible. And it was compiled in 1820 by our founding father and third president, Thomas Jefferson, and I use the term compiled on purpose because that's exactly what Jefferson did with this Bible. He took copies of the Gospel accounts of Jesus's life, written in Greek, Latin, French, and King James English, and he began cutting verses out with a sharp knife. His goal was to completely divorce Jesus from anything divine or miraculous because while he was intrigued by some of Jesus' teaching, Jefferson considered anything miraculous to be utter foolishness. So after he had all the passages he wanted, Jefferson organized them chronologically and he glued them into this book. So I don't know if you can really see that, but basically it's just passage after passage glued into the book chronologically. He made his own kind of account of Jesus's life. In an article written for the History Channel, Aaron Blakemore describes what Jefferson did like this. The ex-president bent over the book, using a razor and scissors to carefully cut out small squares of texts. Soon, the book's words would live in their own book, hand-bound in red leather and ready to be read in private moments of contemplation. Each cut had a purpose, and each word was carefully considered. As he worked, Thomas Jefferson pasted his selections, each in a variety of ancient and modern languages that reflected his vast learning, into the book in neat columns. Thomas Jefferson was known as an inventor and tinkerer, but this time he was tinkering with something held sacred by hundreds of millions of people, the Bible. Using his clippings, the aging third president created a New Testament of his own, one that most Christians would hardly recognize. There, this Bible was focused only on Jesus, but none of his mystical works. It didn't include major scenes like the resurrection or the ascension to heaven or miracles like turning water into wine or walking on water. My question is, why did Jefferson do this? And why has this aversion to the miraculous become such an integral part of American culture? Well, I don't quite have all the answers, so let me make the question a little bit more personal for all of us. What is your reaction when you hear the story of a modern-day miracle? Maybe it's someone who miraculously received some money. They tell the story, right? Rent was about to be due, and when they checked their bank account balance, they saw that they were going to come up a little bit short this month. So they waited and they prayed and they they asked God to intervene until the last possible minute when everything was due and they checked again. And when they did, there was an increase. They had just enough money to pay their bills. There was no record of a new deposit or an extra check, just a higher balance than when they had checked the account a little while before. Or maybe it's someone who's been miraculously cured. When they tell the story that the doctors have no idea what happened, the cancer was there on the screening, but then they went in to operate and it was just gone. The patient was struggling to get out of bed before, but now they're back at work, hanging out with their families, doing great. What do you think when you hear stories like that? I know I may get some judgment for this. One of our core values here at Restore is authenticity, and I'm just trying to live that out by being totally honest with you all. When I hear stories like that, my first thoughts are often something like, well, the doctors must have just missed it, or the bank must have made an error and they fixed it, or even maybe this person isn't really telling the whole story. Now, maybe I'm alone in this, But after conversations I've had with many of you over the years, I doubt it. So let me ask again, why do we, myself included, have such a hard time with believing in the miraculous? I think at the core of it, it's because of our merit-based worldview. In America, we like to pride ourselves on being what is called a meritocracy, it's a place where those with superior skills and bigger work ethics quickly rise to the top, Where uh, a place where everyone gets what they deserve. This is the epitome, right, of the American dream. You can be anything you want. You can rise to anything that you want. Now, there are plenty of issues with American meritocracy, chief among them being that it's really a myth because so much of our upward mobility depends on things which are totally out of our control. But another issue is that any merit-based system or society is completely at odds with the kingdom of God. Because God's kingdom, scripture says, is a place where the poor and the persecuted are called blessed. A place where the first will be last and the last will be first. A place where the lowly are lifted up and the mighty are brought down. Where the hungry are filled with good things and the rich are sent away empty. Those are all quotes from the Bible, by the way. I didn't make any of those up. But as Americans, most of us can't imagine a society where those things are true. They are so opposite from what we've experienced in day-to-day life and contradictory to what we've been taught our whole lives, which leads us back to our issue with miracles. Because by their very nature, miracles are unmerited. They are unachievable. If you could accomplish it for yourself, you wouldn't need a miracle, I believe many American Christians, myself included, again, have trouble accepting miracles because we've been more formed by America than by Christ. I think we have trouble because we've been more formed by a merit-based society than by the kingdom of God. Now, this is true of us today, and it was true of our forefathers 400 years ago. This is our legacy But even though it's our legacy, I don't think it has to be our forever fate, because we have the opportunity to be formed and shaped by the kingdom of God. But it all starts with leaving behind our merit-based ways of thinking and embracing the way of Jesus. That's what we're going to try to do together this morning, take a step toward kingdom living and kingdom thinking. We're going to look at one of these miracles purposefully left out by our boy, Thomas Jefferson. Jesus turning water into wine. Today is week two of a teaching series called Kingdom Incarnate. Today and throughout each message in the series, we'll look at how Jesus embodied the kingdom of God in every way, from big miracles in front of huge crowds to everyday interactions with ordinary people. Turning water into wine is Jesus' first miracle, and it was truly unique He never did anything like it again, and it almost seems to catch him by surprise when he does it. We find the story in John's account of Jesus' life. It starts in chapter 2, verse 1. Here's what it says. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, in order to really understand this story, we have to have a little background uh, about what weddings were like in this context. See, in, in the first century Eastern culture, weddings were massive affairs, they were huge deals. It all started on the first night, the groom would lead a procession of his groomsmen through the streets by torchlight, heading to wherever the bride and the bridal party were staying. And when they arrived at the door, the the groom's party would, would call out, shout out at the bridal party, inviting them to join in on their march. And once the two groups merged, they would head back to the groom's house and the wedding party would begin. Now again, this was not a small or short party these weddings would last for days, sometimes even up to two full weeks. The whole community would attend. And here's the key. The groom's family was expected to provide food and drinks throughout the entire party. And one of the worst societal sins possible during a wedding was running out of food or of wine before the party ended. And that's exactly what happens here. So Mary alerts Jesus that the groom's family has run out of wine. Now, we don't know why Mary is is invested in this wedding. Maybe it's a neighbor or a relative. Maybe it's a close friend. Maybe she's been actually asked to help, maybe oversee the food and drinks or something like that. There's no way to know, but it's obvious that she cares about what happens. So she turns to her son and she says, they have no more wine. And Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. This is one of my very favorite exchanges in all of Scripture. But before we kind of dissect it, I first have to address the elephant in the room with this statement Did Jesus really just call his mom woman? Now, I love my mom. She is truly one of the kindest people I know. But if I ever called her woman in a public place, The whole spare the rod, spoil the child thing would have become a reality for me real quick. But in all seriousness, this seems like a really disrespectful thing for Jesus to say to his mom. Now, I've even heard this passage preached before in order to justify kind of the the poor treatment and even subjugation of women. While Jesus obviously thought his mother was inferior, look at how he talked to her. Well, I think you can only come to that conclusion if you're ignorant of the scriptures or, or purposefully sexist. And here at Restore, we do our best to be neither of those things. So I know that to be true, because when you look through John's entire account of Jesus's life, Mary actually only appears two times, once in this story, and then again when Jesus is on the cross. Here's that second one. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. So in one of the tenderest moments of Jesus's life, he looks out at his mom, who was actually a widow by this time. And he knows that she needs to be taken care of after he is gone. And the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's actually the author here, John. So Jesus sees Mary standing next to one of his very best friends, and he says, woman, here's your son. John, here's your mother. Take care of her. And John takes Mary into his home, and they support and take care of each other for the rest of their lives. Woman is a term of great affection, not disrespect. So now, with that out of the way, let's get back to the story. With great affection, right, Jesus asks his mom, why should he be concerned about the groom's party foul? Why do you involve me, he says, my hour has not yet come. Now remember, I said this is Jesus' first miracle, and it almost seems to catch him by surprise. In the great book called The Jesus I Never Knew that I've been talking about throughout our year in the life of Jesus, Philip Yancey reflects on this moment. He says, we can only guess what went through Jesus's mind during those next few seconds as he weighed Mary's request. If he acted, that would mean his time had come. And from that moment on, his life would change. If word of his powers leaked, he would soon hear pleas from needy people from Tyre to Jerusalem. Crowds would flock, epileptics, paralytics, deaf mutes, the demon possessed, not to mention any street beggar who wanted a free glass of wine. Investigators would be dispatched from the Capitol, a clock would start ticking that would not stop until Calvary. Calvary is the name of that hillside where Jesus would be publicly executed on a cross just a few years later. I I can't get over how human of an interaction this is between Jesus and his mom. On the one hand, Mary has no doubt that Jesus can help this groom's family. She knew who Jesus was. She had no doubts about what he could do. You know, it makes me think every Christmas we sing that song, Mary, Did You Know? And that song often gets made fun of by pastors and theologians. Of course she knew, you know, she's Mary, she's the mother of God, the angel appeared to her. But it's one of my favorite songs. And I don't think there's any way Mary could have known everything about her son's life and death and resurrection, how it would all play out. But there's no doubt in my mind that she knew he had the power and passion to help people in need. So with that knowledge, Mary asks Jesus to help. And now Jesus has a decision to make. Does he perform his first miracle and start the countdown, start that clock ticking toward Calvary? Or does he wait? Let's see what happens, verse six. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He then called the bridegroom and pulled him aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have already had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. Now, obviously the initial thing that stands out in this story is the miracle itself. Jesus takes water and he makes it into wine. Now, my guess is that We are not sommeliers, most of us. Most of us have no idea how uh, the process of wine fermenting and all that stuff actually works. So I, I brought the words of an expert with me, Dr. Jim Williams. He's a professor of anatomy, physiology, and cell biology at Indiana University's medical school. He reflected on this phenomenon in an article he wrote called Water into Wine, a bigger miracle than you might think. Here's what he says. I confess that I have always thought of this miracle as being one of rearranging the atoms of water to get wine. That, admittedly, would be quite a miracle. But for me, it would still involve, to some extent, the conservation of matter law that was drilled into me in my chemistry classes. But when I listed out the approximate composition of first century wine, I discovered something that surprised me. Water, even rather dirty water, does not have the correct atoms to make wine. Those sugars, alcohols, aromatic compounds, and colors contain much more carbon and nitrogen than would be in water. In order for the water drawn by the servants to become a liquid recognized by the steward as "quote good wine," new atoms would have had to be formed within the jars. That is, the miracle of water to wine must involve the creation of something new. It's astounding. Jesus changing this water into good wine is not simply a matter of speeding up the aging process or even a matter of, of rearranging atoms. It is the creation of something completely new. This first miracle from Jesus on earth points us back to the very first miracle in history, the creation of the world in Genesis 1 and 2. In that miracle, as in this one, God makes something completely new. It's awesome. But there's something else going on here, something a little less obvious, and I believe even more significant than this kind of just scientific explanation of water turning into wine. It comes from an often overlooked description of what held the water. Back to verse six. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. The jars that Jesus instructs the servant to fill, they're not haphazardly collected from various corners of the home. They don't go into the kitchen and just get anything they can that'll hold liquid and bring it out. These jars were in a very specific place in the home and serving a very specific purpose. They were ceremonial washing jars used for the Jewish custom of purification. Now, purification laws were laid out in the Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament, but by now, in the first century, this ceremonial washing went even beyond those. Think about it like this. It's as if the religious leaders of the time took the Old Testament law, then they built a fence around it, then they erected a wall around the fence, now, they did this under the guise of saying, we don't want anyone to be even get close to breaking this law, and so we're just gonna build more and more barriers, more and more laws around it. But in reality, they used it as yet another way to maintain control over the people. Because then what they would do is the religious leaders would teach that God's love could only be earned by perfectly performing their rituals. It was burdensome, It was cruel, and according to Jesus, it was completely backwards from what God intended. Here's Philip Yancey again. Tellingly, John notes that the wine came from huge jugs that stood full of water at the front of the house, vessels that were used by observant Jews to fulfill the rules on ceremonial washing. Even a wedding feast had to honor the burdensome rituals of cleansing. Jesus perhaps with a twinkle in his eye, transformed those jugs, ponderous symbols of the old way, into wineskins, harbingers of the new. From purified water of the Pharisees came the choice new wine of a whole new era. The time for ritual cleansing had passed. The time for celebration had begun. Y'all, it's important for us to realize here Jesus isn't just updating the old way. He is creating something completely new. The religious leaders of the time, they preached a message of scarcity. No matter what you did, it was never enough. There are always more rules to follow. There are always more penances to pay, more religious rituals to perform. The God that they spoke about was constantly dissatisfied with humanity and just waiting for a chance to punish people. But through this miracle and through the rest of his life, Jesus preached a message, not of scarcity, but of abundance. He showed us that there is always more wine, more loaves, more fish. He showed us that there is peace that surpasses all understanding, that there is mercy in our time of need and grace upon grace for anyone who wants it. And above all, he showed us that there is an abundance of love overflowing from a well that never runs dry. And do you wanna know what the most amazing part is? All of it, all of it is freely given to anyone and everyone who wants to partake of it. As scripture says, it is by grace we have been saved not through our good works or because of anything we have done. It is a gift from God. Now, as amazing as this miracle is, John is actually the only one who records it in his account of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, and Luke leave it out. Why is that? I think it's as simple as this. I think it's because John understood this miracle for what it really was. Because Jesus turning the water into wine is so much more than helping a friend in need. It was more than just making sure that the party got to keep going, and it was more than demonstrating his own divine capabilities. If it was only about those things, there are plenty of more powerful examples from Jesus's life to point to. But more than anything else, this miracle is about replacing the old covenant water with new covenant wine. And in doing so, Jesus breaks the chains of sin and oppressive religion in order to set us free to experience the abundant life that God desires for us to live. John knew this. That's why he calls this miraculous act by Jesus, not just a miracle, but a sign. Because by turning water into wine, Jesus points towards something even greater than the actual miracle itself. Listen to how John concludes the story. Verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This miracle was the first of many signs by which Jesus revealed his glory. That word glory, it carried a lot of weight in this language and culture. One Bible interpreter says that it speaks of an especially divine quality the unspoken manifestation of God. Jesus is putting the unspoken manifestation of God on full display at this wedding. Turning water into wine is about so much more than keeping the groom from embarrassment. This is about the fullness of God in human flesh, holding humanity's face in between his hands, looking us directly in the eyes and saying, you don't have to live this way anymore. You don't have to keep trying to navigate the broken world without help. You don't have to keep performing religious rituals without hope. And most of all, you don't have to wonder if God loves you you don't have to wonder if I love you because I put on flesh and came to this earth to show you once and for all that I love you more than you could ever possibly imagine. This story always makes me think of one of my favorite Brennan Manning quotes. He says, God is not moody or capricious. He knows no seasons of change. He has a single, relentless stance toward us. He loves us. A single, relentless stance. He loves us. I know that we are all walking through a lot right now. The collective trauma that has been inflicted on us over the last year some of it are of our own making and some of it completely beyond our control is something that we've never experienced before. But that just makes this need to rest and rely on the love of Jesus even more important. In my restore group on Wednesday night, we went around and we shared different ways that we're kind of attempting to cope with the difficulty of life right now. I found it so helpful to hear what other folks are doing So I'm gonna read you some of the ideas and maybe they'll help you too. First one that was said was cooking. One girl said, I just chop some vegetables and I don't think about anything else. I just am able to focus in on that. Others talked about trying new recipes, exploring new things, creating, immersing themselves in the act of cooking. Many people talked about taking walks outside maybe with their dogs or with their kids or just by themselves exploring nature. On the same lines, other people talked about gardening, getting your hands dirty, getting in there, really trying to um, use the ground to cultivate and build something and make something and then letting it go, releasing it and seeing what God does. Other people talked about working out, of staying active. Some others listening to music, some others meditating or doing yoga. Still other people just playing with their kids, turning everything else off, going outside, just engaging with their kids. Some people talked about sharing a drink with a loved one. But we found through talking about all these different things that whenever we entered into one of them and we stilled our minds and sought his presence, Jesus met us during each one of these activities in unique and beautiful ways. So that's my encouragement for us today. That's my encouragement for you today. Take a break from doom scrolling through social media, turn off the news for a minute, and find a way to rest in the love of Jesus. Let's pray. God, I am so grateful for your relentless stance toward us. For the love you have, the love made manifest in Jesus coming to earth, turning water into wine, doing all kinds of miracles and eventually laying his life down and then taking it up again, overcoming death and the grave and evil and rising from the dead. But God, as we think about and consider this miracle of water into wine, I pray that you would impress upon us that you could have grabbed jars or had those servants get containers from anywhere in the house, that you chose those ritual cleansing jars on purpose to show us that you are not updating an old way, you are doing something totally new. And that new thing, that new covenant, God, it's based on your deep love for us, the free gift of hope and grace and mercy and life that you offer to anyone and everyone who wants to partake. God, we want to partake. I want to partake not just someday in heaven, but right here and now, even in the midst of these difficult days. So I pray that we would all find ways to rest in your love. And that as we do that, you would empower us to not just rest in your love, but to share it with others who desperately need it right now as well. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.